This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. Joined by Mary Lucas from Transitions Life Care. Here's your host, Jason Kong. Welcome to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Thank you so much for joining us on this Thanksgiving weekend. I'm Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas representing Transitions Life Care. Mary, how are you doing today? How was your Thanksgiving? It was great. We, I, I didn't have to do anything. My sister did it all. And I love that for me. <laughs> I didn't cook the turkey this year. I did it last year. That's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. A lot of work. And hey, I'm just going to say it. I love Thanksgiving time, but the turkey... We can do better than turkey. Turkey, so so dry. My dad does fish, and we did it a lot earlier than Thanksgiving because, you know, divorced family, yada, yada, yada. And so we do fish, and it's really welcome. It's kind of, like, different, and um, we did that the weekend before Thanksgiving. It's lovely. Very nice, very nice. Well, we're going to stick with our Thanksgiving theme here. We're going to keep it family, and we've got such a special guest here in the studio. We have Kate Sharon, and she is... Your sister, we're going to be discussing genetic testing. Yes, I forced her into this after maybe a glass of wine uh, beyond her will. I said, you should be on the radio. We should talk about genetic testing. And she was like, uh, I'm like, okay, one more glass of wine. She'll come on. Uh, (laughs) One more glass of wine and she'll come on. (laughs) Welcome, Kate. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So maybe we talk about, this is my younger sister. Well, my only sister, but my younger sister. (laughs) Um, She's three years younger than me. Um, Maybe we tell everybody a little bit about what you do because also outside of the genetic testing world what you do for a living is also cool and kind of relevant we should have you on the show again to talk about what you do for a living yeah happy to help um so i am in the clinical research space so i work in clinical trials been in clinical trials about eight years now i'm working in study startup so it's very exciting and i work across all different types of therapeutic areas and phase trials and yeah you do cancer trials and yep i've done oncology trials in the past i've worked in car t trials i've worked in genetic testing or genetic editing trials, all types of things. That's cool. Mm -hmm. We did a show on clinical trials. It's been a while now. Um, We did a show on, um, was it Alzheimer? I can't remember what what clinical trial it was, but it was really cool. Um, So we should do another one. (laughs) Um, All right. So to genetic testing, first, what, you know, why? I mean, where did this start? Why did it even come up in the realm of an option that you could have? Like what, what got you to even that conversation with your physician? Yeah. So The conversation started with um, when I was 26, I was diagnosed with melanoma. Um, At the time, it was a stage one, um, and we thought it was just kind of a fluke, a one-off. So my dermatologist at that time didn't recommend it um, because it seemed like it was just a one-off, and we just handled it with surgery, and and then it was monitoring every three months for the next five years. And then right after the five-year mark, I found out that I had melanoma again, but this time it was a little bit more invasive. Um, So it was a stage two melanoma. Um, and because this was the second time, right after I hit that five-year mark, um, they, my dermatologist actually recommended that, um, along with the surgery, that I proceed with genetic testing um, just to ensure that we were covering our bases with um, any types of cancer because it turns out melanoma can sometimes be caused by a gene mutation, and that same gene mutation is actually linked to other types of cancers. Um, So with that, it was just good to have that knowledge of, you know, is this caused by um, cumulative sun damage or is this caused by a genetic mutation that could also be linked to other cancers to be aware of? 
I think it's a shout out to your doctor as well that recognized, you know, these patterns. And we have a great dermatologist who's a family dermatologist at this point. (laughs) We all have lots of things. I have, you know, psoriasis and we've got melanoma and all the other things. So it's great that your physician recognized the pattern and offered something like this. But was it a little bit alarming when they did offer it? Is it kind of something like, what the heck? (laughs) What is involved in this? Like, was it alarming to even hear that? Um, I think luckily, since I'm in clinical trials, I knew a little bit about um, genetic testing and gene editing. So I wasn't as probably scared. Um, I will say I did have a lot of questions with that. You know, should I be worried? Like, what kinds of things are they going to uncover? Will that change my overall Um, treatment plan. And Mm -hmm. that was kind of where I focused my time was asking questions around like, what does this mean? If they find something, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for my treatment plan? Mm -hmm. What does that mean for my son? I do have a young son that's um, two and a half. And I wanted to know, you know, what am I carrying down to him? So I think that also changed the calculus on, on moving forward with it is understanding my own genes and is this caused by gene mutation that I could possibly be passing down to him as well to be on the lookout for things with him. Um, So it was initially recommended by by my dermatologist. And then when I went to Duke Oncology for my surgery, um, the surgeon um, was a surgical oncologist, and he actually brought it up again and was like, you know, strongly recommend given your age and that this has happened twice now. um, It's good to know, is this being caused by gene mutation? So after that kind of second recommendation, I moved forward with it. So tell us about that a little bit. So you you go to Duke Oncology. Who Then do they send you somewhere else? Is there mm-hmm. actually like a Duke den- genetic yes. testing place or a, is it like who, yeah. <laughs> who, what, where, when? Yeah. <laughs> Great questions. Um, so my Duke surgeon, after we went through with the surgery in my follow-up appointment, um, he went through the results with me and then he was the one that actually set up the consultation with the um, Duke genetic testing department. So I met with in a DNA, um, like a whole team of people. It was two separate people that I met with and they went through what the testing would look like, what the cost would be, what specifically they were looking for. Um, and then we went through my entire family history. So I had to fill out some paperwork just saying, you know, did I know of any other specifically, did I know of any other people in our family that had cancer and what types of cancer? Um, now, with that being said, you know, there are some unknowns there. We have some family members that have passed away or maybe we're not as close with anymore. So I wasn't able to get all of the answers that I'd hoped to get, but I did it to the best of my ability and then shared that with the genetic counselors and they reviewed it with me in depth. Um, and then it was just a simple blood test. They sent me to a um, a just normal doctor's type office <laughs> really close to my house. They pulled the blood. They said, we'll be in touch in um, two weeks. And within two weeks, I got a phone call and we went through all the results together. So it was a very simple process um, besides the sitting down and thinking about my family tree. <laughs> um, but How far back did you have to go? Yeah. I, I remember you asking me questions, <laughs> but I don't remember. My, I, I didn't even ask you, like, how far are you going here? <laughs> did you have to interview, like, our aunts and uncles? Or, like, how yeah. did the, how far did you go? <laughs> so I went to my grandparents. So I did our grandparents, our parents, our aunts, our uncles, our cousins, uh, my sister, my brother, um, and then my son. And that was it. So it was just a pretty simple exercise. And again, I didn't know all the answers to the questions and I did the best that I could. Um, and then I asked I asked a couple of family members, you know, hey, if you're comfortable sharing this with me, it would be really helpful to help um, fill out this family tree as you know comprehensive as we can in order to hopefully get 
a, the, a good answer on like what the chances are of me having another type of gene mutation related to cancer. Did they ever tell you if you didn't have the answers about your family? Like for those of a, those that are mm-hmm. listening that maybe don't have, you know, all of their family around, did they ever tell you if it's necessary or to not worry about it? Or I'm just thinking like mm-hmm. somebody who doesn't have a lot of family, um, what, what would they do in that situation? You may not know the answer to that. Yeah. but <laughs> They did, actually. So um, I did have a couple of unknowns, and they said, you know what, don't worry about it, because at the end of the day, we're going to look at um, your specific genetic makeup, and we already know, I think it was like in the 70s, we know about 70 or so mutations that are linked to different types of cancer. So all we really need to look at is your genetic makeup, and if you have more people in your family that have had any type of cancer, it just kind of increases the likelihood that insurance is going to cover it. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it ended up, <clears throat> for me specifically, I ended up covering nothing. I didn't have to pay anything out of pocket, which oh, was, wow. yeah. Now, I am lucky, and I do know that it's a privilege to have really good health care um, or health insurance, and mm-hmm. that I do have through my company. Um, so I'm thankful for that. But um, the more links I was able to show, the more there was the chance that I would likely have a genetic mutation that was causing this. And so when they turned around and showed that to the insurance company, the insurance company said, yep, you've had melanoma twice. It's likely a gene mutation somewhere along the lines. So because of that, they were able to um, talk to my insurance company and get it fully paid. That's awesome. hmm That's great to hear. We're speaking with Kate Sharon. She is Mary's sister, and she's talking (laughs) all about genetic testing. And we're going to continue our conversation with her in just a bit. Stick around. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. News, talk, traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF with your hosts, Mary Lucas and Jason Kong. Welcome back to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. I'm Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas, and we're, we're keeping it in the family today. We've got Kate Sharon with us, who's Mary's sister, and we're talking about her experience with genetic testing, and we're going to get back to that. But yes. before we do that, yes. we are revisiting uh, a new segment that we debuted on Aging Matters, uh, and it's called Dog Paws. And we take a moment <laughs> and we speak with our guests to uh, to hear about their dogs, uh, their four-legged friends. So, uh, Kate, please tell us about any four-legged friends oh in gosh. the Sharon household. You would. Um, <laughs> he started this, oh, not this me. Jason started this. So I do have one dog. His name is Copper. He is a mix. Um, he's a hound mix. So he is a big red dog. He looks like Scooby-Doo and he acts like Scooby-Doo. Um, <laughs> he's about 70 pounds of pure love and anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> and you adopted him from? We adopted him from Freedom Ride. He's Where I old. foster, yes. Yeah. And he's grown up with my nephew, which is really cool. He has. And we actually hit an incredible milestone last night. Last night, for the first time ever, my son looked at him and told him to sit, and he did. So he's now <laughs> listening to a two-year-old, which is <clears throat> excellent and very funny to watch. So. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for sharing about Copper. Back to our regularly scheduled program here. Mary, take it away. Okay, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, Jason created this last guest who was very excited as well to Love speak us. about her dogs. I think everyone likes to talk about their dogs. 
Um, all right. I forgot to ask you, what were you even looking for when you were, you know, you had melanoma twice. Why do genetic testing? What are they even looking for at this point? It's not to, are you having melanoma again, I assume? What, what else are they looking for? Yeah, so something I didn't know until I was diagnosed with melanoma is that it can be caused by either cumulative sun damage or a genetic mutation. And that same genetic mutation that could cause the melanoma can be linked to other types of cancers, right? So um, they were looking specifically at, there are 84 gene mutations I know of out of 20,000 that can be linked to types of cancers. And so when you have these genetic mutations, it means you're at higher risk. It doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to for sure get cancer if you have this genetic mutation. Um, But there are some that are linked, right? So you might have a break in one gene, and that means that you're at higher risk to get breast cancer and and possibly melanoma. And so then it it would mean that my treatment plan might change a bit, where if I did have a gene mutation that was the true cause of my melanoma instead of cumulative sun damage, if it was also linked to another type of cancer, it might mean that I need to do additional preventative, you know, treatments ahead of the normal time you would had you not had that gene mutation. So that's what they were looking for. I mean, there are, they don't know what all the gene mutations do um, at this point in time. Right now they were looking specifically at 84. um, And then they were just going to see, you know, should that change my treatment plan at all? It's interesting. And it's something, it's wild to me. Like you don't know all the things that are connected to, to certain genes. And it's very interesting. How long did it take you to get results after you had that visit? They took the blood. Then what happened? How long did it take? So it was about two weeks. So I went in for that initial blood draw the next day. So I met with the genetic counseling team. Um, we went through the family um, tree exercise. And then right after that next day, I was able to go in and get blood drawn. It took you know 15 minutes on my lunch break. And then I was able to go about my day. Um, so super non-invasive, very easy to do. And then two weeks later, um, I got a phone call with the results. And then we scheduled a follow-up um, video chat, actually. So it was super convenient um, to be able to sit down and talk to them about, you know, what are the results? What does that mean for my treatment plan? What are my options? Um, and, and all of that. So that that time waiting for results is two weeks. It's a lot of time in between. And I remember what the two weeks was like, because I remember you talking about it. Did you ever question in that time frame? What what was that feeling like? And did you ever question like what next if something was positive? How would you feel? What would you do? That's a that's two weeks could be a long time when waiting for answers. I was very nervous. Um, it kind of brought me back to when they had done my initial biopsies. Um, the initial biopsy was done and it took about five days before I got the call saying that I had melanoma again. Um, so it just kind of brings back those painful memories of you know, the waiting being just really difficult to think through You know, all the what ifs are going through your mind. Like what if there is a link to some other cancer that I hadn't even thought of that maybe I have some symptoms that I've not thought anything about and now all of a sudden, oh gosh, I've got breast cancer or, or, right. or what have you. So it, all the what ifs were going through my mind. And like I mentioned, I have a young son. So I was thinking about not just myself, but also for him, You know, if I have a gene mutation, what's the likelihood that I've passed it down to him where then we need to be on the lookout for something um, sooner than later with him as well. So mm-hmm. I had a lot of anxiety around the entire process, but I, I knew that this was the right thing to do for me because knowledge is power. And the more I knew mm-hmm. about what was causing my cancer, the more I knew about the options available to me to try and prevent finding something later um, along than, you know, later along in the staging process. Mm-hmm. 
And, and so then what were, were the results? If you don't mind sharing yeah. people, what, what, <laughs> what actually happened and what do you plan to do with the information that you did get back from the test? Right. So I do have one gene mutation. Um, it was considered to be an uncertain result, um, and it was a mutation in NTHL1, which is linked to colon cancer. Um, so it is this particular gene mutation. One mutation isn't enough to actually cause you to have colon cancer. It takes two. So statistically speaking, because we have nobody in our family line that we know of with colon cancer, um, it likely will not be in my lifetime, but it is something to be aware of with my son. So that if my husband's side of the family does have colon cancer in it, and if it were possibly to have been caused by the same gene mutation, then we did possibly pass it down to our son, and that could cause him to have colon cancer. Um, that being said, I'll still start colonoscopies at age 45, um, which I think is the normal mm-hmm. time frame for everybody. Um, and then they did keep my genetic testing on file um, at Duke so that if moving forward, if they know more about that mutation specifically, and if that increases the risk of any other type of cancer, they'll call me actually proactively and say, mm-hmm. hey, we now know more about this gene mutation. Oh, cool. You should start to do XYZ screenings or whatever it is. Um, So I thought that was pretty neat that they're so proactive about that. Um, They also did say that I am BRCA negative, which was one of the ones they were looking at um, because Mm -hmm. there is a link between breast cancer and melanoma, which I didn't know until I did this exercise. Um, But so that was great news to not have the BRCA gene, which could have then meant that I needed to be um, screening for uh, breast cancer much sooner. But the flip side of that, when they looked at our family tree a little bit more in depth and at my specific case with melanoma twice, I ended up being um, at higher risk to get breast cancer as well. So I didn't know that. And it wasn't, it would be BRCA negative. So it'd be a different treatment plan. And it takes into account, you know, the age that you are when you start your menstrual cycle, as well as your family history. Um, and I did find out my lifetime risk is about 21% higher um, to get breast cancer as well. So that means that I'll have to start doing mammograms or MRIs every six months starting at age 40. Um, and that I, I qualify for high risk screening. So my insurance company will be likely to pay for those um, at an earlier age than otherwise. So so it was very informative. Um, again, I think the colon cancer was kind of a shock to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it was something I hadn't even considered really, but and it's just good to know of for our son as he ages to keep an eye on. You you mentioned that Duke is keeping your results on file. Does that make you nervous? Like who else is <laughs> resuming your test results? Do you sign something that says yes. like my stuff can go to other researchers or anything like that? Like what your is your yes. like gene? Are they like <laughs> out there in the atmosphere like no. floating around for the whole world? They are not. So luckily, um, since I'm in clinical trials, I know a little bit about <laughs> the storage of patient confidential information. Um, and in this case, I signed an informed consent form, which did tell me the risks, the benefits, the things to be aware of with the procedure and what would happen after they did it. Um, and so, yes, they're keeping them on file just at Duke. And no, they do not have my consent to share my gene um, results with anybody outside of the Duke network. Oh, that's good. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned one last thing on this. You, you mentioned it was covered by insurance. Was there? A, you said there was no cost to you. If there was a cost to you, did they tell you how much it would be for those that are listening that maybe wouldn't have it covered? Is this something they can optionally get? Do you know? Um, I want to say, don't quote me on this because I think it depends on, on yep. where you're going yep. to get your genetic testing and what your situation is, right? So for me, because I did have this, you know, two, I had a recurring melanoma, um, I, it was a lower cost. Um, and I believe they had said it would only be about $200 out of pocket had I, you know, proceeded with it without insurance. So that was specifically for Duke. Um, I can't speak to the other networks or providers, but um, in my situation, it would have been about $200. 
It's awesome. Yeah. It's something that's good peace of mind for the future, for Jack, my nephew, um, and for you when thinking about, you know, how to do, do to follow up on preventative um, care and, and make sure you have all that testing done. Right. Kate, thank you so much for coming on and for being so open with us about your experience with genetic testing. I thought it was a fascinating discussion, and uh, I hope you and Mary, uh, you know, didn't come to blows on Thanksgiving and <laughs> everything went well. I, obviously, you didn't if you're both here in the studio, so unless you two hide it really well. But thank you again for coming on the show and for sharing your experience. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was our pleasure. And we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back with more. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. News, talk, traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. 60 minutes devoted to giving you all the information you need when caring for a loved one with Mary Lucas and Jason Kong. If you have questions for the show, you can email agingmatters at transitionslifecare.org. Welcome back to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. News, talk, traffic. I am Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas, and we're going to shift gears a little bit. We are going to be talking about death doulas and to have a thoughtful conversation on that. We are pleased to welcome onto the program Jane Dorman. She is a end-of-life doula with Peaceful Crossings in Durham. Jane, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. This is a topic that we hear about, uh, and, and it's becoming more and more uh, prevalent, and, and more and more people are talking about death doula services. So, Jane, let's just start off with the basics. What is a death doula? And, you know, we also hear death midwife. Is that interchangeable? Is it the same thing? Um, tell us a little bit about what a death doula is. Sure. Um, it is the same as a midwife, though that's a, a less commonly used term. But the reason that's used is because the death doula model originated from the birth doula model, hmm. uh, being a birth midwife. Um, and what a death doula does is I'm a non-medical professional who assists terminally ill people and their support systems in preparing for the end of life. Um, and that can involve so many facets. So for one, there's a logistical aspect, so I can help with saying, here's all the paperwork you should have locked down. Do you need help downsizing? Do you have um, after-death plans, like plots? Uh, do you have care services lined up? Things like that. On the personal uh, side, I help with things like life review um, and legacy work, uh, bucket list items, and overall being an objective third party that listens and guides the person um, towards what they want. And then there's a spiritual aspect to it, if that's how you some people prefer to label it, which is um, planning for a vigil, which is your actively dying phase, um, making sure any ceremonies you want to have, any rituals happen, um, and kind of exploring and supporting belief systems. Wow, that's a lot. I can imagine yeah. <laughs> we weaved into a lot of the things that you just talked about. There's a lot of family dynamics and, and things that you work on with not just the person who is facing death themselves, but also their families as well, I can imagine. Yes. And, you know, one of the huge things that I'm encountering is um, as the older generation 
starts to pass away, you have so many adult children, uh, you know, I guess you'd call them millennials now, who are entering the caretaker role who have never seen somebody uh, decline and die before. And there are so many ways in which um, that that new role of caretaker, they need support. And more importantly, they need the education. They need to understand what happens leading up to the actively dying phase and what actively dying looks like. Because as my favorite hospice nurse, Barbara Carnes says, we do not die like we do in the movies. Um, and so many people are unprepared for that. And, um, you know, that's where the dual role, I think, is increasingly important. That's a that's that's very interesting. I I'm, I'm going to relate this back to my my own personal experience. Recently, my grandfather passed, as some some of you know. Um, and I was talking to my brother, who's a millennial, and um, towards the end, he was like, "Well, why aren't we taking him to the hospital? Like, why why wouldn't we do that right now? Um, he has an infection and he has a UTI. Why would why wouldn't we treat that? Um, and and on hospice and and where we were and my grandfather's wishes were not to do that. Um, and it was very interesting. Interesting to explain and talk with him about it, and um, and his feelings ab- about that, and not seeing death before, and what was going on. It was very very difficult. So I can imagine your role would really help in that situation. Yeah, and you know, it's really really hard for us to get out of the the fix it mindset, especially mm-hmm. in a situation that's medical. Death has become in our culture a very medicalized event versus a rite of passage and a personal and community event. And it's hard to to not say, hey, um, so, you know, this person has a fever, which is actually very common in the last three days of mm-hmm. end of life. Um, you know, we have to do something about the fever. And it's kind of just centering everyone and bringing them back and saying, this is a natural process. Mm-hmm. What's happening is supposed to happen. And by doing that, it allows people to be so much more present and to be there and to get out of panic mode. Um yeah, and it, it did take some practice, and having a guide there really helps. Definitely. What are some of the other benefits of having a, a death doula and navigating the end-of-life process? Well, first I'm going to say the objective third-party aspect, and also doulas who have gone through training are trained to have conversations in a certain way and to actively listen. What I mean by conversations in a certain way is I do not come to the table with an agenda. I am a facilitator for the dying person to figure out what is best for them because they know what's best for them. So asking a lot of open-ended questions. Um, not A lot of people have tendency to want to fill the silence by offering advice or responding with something. And sometimes it's really helpful to just be silent and to just listen and you know what we would now call hold space for that person. Um, so that's really helpful. And then, you know, a lot of people who come to me ha- have mostly just received a terminal diagnosis, one that they weren't expecting. And the medical system is very hard to navigate as a healthy person. Mm-hmm. So if you're in the mindset of someone who's just told that they have a very limited time, it's overwhelming. There, you know, because you want to think about, well, if you have adult children, what do I need to do to set them up? What paperwork do I need? But also, what do I need for me? And tackling all those things at once uh, alone without familiarity of how to move forward is really overwhelming, and mm-hmm. doulas can help with that. 
That is that is very important. I, you know, in the hospice industry, which is um, where transitions is, and where where I work, it's something that you know we're faced with often. Is that overwhelming, um, you know, moment when we reach people? A lot of the times, it's a family or the loved one who is facing the terminal illness. is It's just a lot to take on, and I can imagine having that death doula in place would help navigate that a little bit more outside of the medical um, space of of hospice and palliative care and, and those services. Uh, you mentioned, sure. go ahead. No, no, that's it. <laughs> I, I, you mentioned the training and certifications for a death doula. What, what is entailed with um, being certified as a death doula and what are the kind of trainings that you go through? So I would really say the flagship one is, is the first one I did, uh, the International End of Life Doula Association, referred to as Imelda. Uh, they really spearheaded this movement. Um, it's part of what's called the positive death movement. I received the training from them, um, and then I immediately went into hospice volunteer work to get experience. And since then, I've uh, been certified by the University of Vermont Larner College of Medicine, which also offers a certificate. Um, and there are other organizations that are uh, very prominent as well, including NEDA, N-E-D-A, which is the National End of Life Doula Alliance, um, many former nurses or current nurses, and they focus on training, but also are very ethics focused, the ethics of being a doula. Um, and then, you know, there, there's those are the three main ones as I see them. There are lots of other ones like the Conscious Dying Institute, um, but also really essential to training is just boots on the ground experience, which nothing is going to replace. Mm-hmm. Do you need that experience? We are speaking with Jane Dornman. She is a end-of-life doula with Peaceful Crossings Durham, and we're going to continue our conversation with Jane right after this. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. Joined by Mary Lucas from Transitions Life Care. Here's your host, Jason Kong. Welcome back to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Don't forget you can go to transitionslifecare.org. To find more resources available to you online, transitionslifecare.org. I'm Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas. Our guest on the line is Jane Dornman, and she is a end-of-life doula, and we are talking about death doulas. Definitely. You know, I want to go all the way back to the beginning here, Jane. I, I never asked, how did you decide to become a death doula? What sparked your interest in this and, and your background leading up to this? What brought you to to want to be certified as a death doula and into practice? Uh, so most people that I speak to come to this in one of two ways. Either they experience what you would call a bad death in their family, or they are a hospice nurse who sees mm-hmm. the whole in the system, and I am the former. Um, in 2009, my mother uh, was hospitalized. She would die two weeks later. And in those two weeks, you know, I had no experience with death or dying at all. Uh, I maybe got to speak to a doctor once or twice um, to try and understand what was going on. 
And it was actually a nurse who pulled me aside and said, you understand your mother is not leaving here. Mm. And I had not understood that from my conversation with the doctor because a lot of doctors are not trained in having end of life conversations. Mm -hmm. And throughout those two weeks, you know, the staff did an amazing job, um, but I really didn't understand what was happening to my mother's body. Mm -hmm. Um, And it caused a lot of upset and, um, you know, I, because she had flipped into a coma, I wasn't able to have important conversations with her that I would have liked to have. Mm -hmm. And so walking away from that, you know, I, it took me years to kind of think of, well, what went wrong? And is this how people die Mm -hmm. today? And then when I gave birth to my son, I, the staff was great, but again, you know, people weren't communicating with me. I didn't know what questions to ask. Um, There were complications and I didn't know how to advocate for myself. And it was very much a a mirror of the experience of the death of my mother, you know, and I had been advised to get a birth doula, but I I poo-pooed that saying, well, that's, you know, too new agey for me. I could have really used a birth doula um, (laughs) in hindsight. And so I kind of went down a rabbit hole, I guess, um, looking at movements where people were recognizing these patterns and trying to fix them. And that's how I found Anelda and did the training. That's really interesting. The connection also between birth doulas and death doulas is is interesting. You come into this world and you go out of this world um, in a way that's actually strikingly similar. Um, and um, and doulas being able to navigate that is something that um, is an interesting thing to, to think about. Yeah, we labor out of this world just like we labor into it. Mm-hmm. So talk to me a little bit about how death doulas and the services that you offer differs from what hospice care offers? Well, the primary differentiator I see is time. So if you're uh, on home hospice, which means you're on hospice, but you're remaining in your own home and hospice staff is coming to you, on average, you have a nurse come to see you about three hours a week. That's a lot of hours where a nurse is not there. Um, and it falls on your caretakers or it will fall on you financially to arrange additional care. Um, and the reason for that in part is one, there's a lot of people who need hospice services and there's only so many people who can offer them. Mm-hmm. And number two, this is a Medicare funded model. So, you know, hospices have to pay attention as a business, whether they're profit or nonprofit on the hours. A nurse cannot sit there endlessly with a patient they have other patients to see. And so doulas are really, um, because we don't fit into that Medicare model, we're not on the clock, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I can sit there and talk with you about your advanced directives all day if you want me to. Mm-hmm. While there are social workers at hospice who assist with that kind of stuff, they really can't get into the weeds with you and your family and have these you know, conversations that may go hours and hours. Mm -hmm. They will tell you, hey, you need this paperwork, but, you know, doing the rest of the legwork is up to you. The other thing is I do a lot of legacy work. So people want to do legacy projects. They want to think about things they want to leave behind for their loved ones. Um, Hospice is not going to sit with you and and come up with a legacy project and help you complete it. Mm Um, So those are the main differentiators. Um, You know, I sit vigil, which means when you're actively dying, I will sit with you and make sure that the environment that you chose to have during that time is stays that way. 
Um, and that's just not something that hospice can offer uh, on a large scale. That's very important and something definitely to think about. You you talked a little bit about the Medicare benefit of hospice. Um, what is when you talk when you think about death doulas? How is this covered? How is it paid for? Um, and what does the charge look like on a death doula service? So the what is the charge is all over the map. Mm-hmm. Um, we are not reimbursed by insurance or Medicare. Um, so this is a private cost. There are many doulas who do this pro bono for some families. There are doulas who do it uh, on an hourly fee or a package fee, um, and there are doulas who do it on a sliding scale. So I operate on a donations-only model because I want this to be available to everybody, Mm -hmm. um, and my donation level is capped. Mm -hmm. And so right now, if if you're looking in the Durham-Raleigh area, I would say you could find a doula ranging between $50 an hour to $100 an hour. And that would all be out of pocket or free. Gotcha. That's very helpful. When should someone think about calling a death doula? You know, you're sitting in the doctor's office, you get a terminal cancer diagnosis, just just using an example. Um, when is the right time to involve a death doula if you're, you know, looking at six months of life left? Is it the appropriate time or do you call sooner or, I mean, later in the process? What's the appropriate time to, to get someone like you involved? So what's interesting about that question is at the beginning of the dual movement, which was years ago, before many people heard of it, the idea was that once you're on hospice, which is typically you have six months or less to live, you should engage with a doula. But we're finding that that's not enough time. And the reason for that is because people are entering hospice too late. It's it's not common to be on hospice for six full months anymore. People delay it. Um, And then also... I would like people to come in earlier. So if you have a chronic disease, like kidney disease, and you're in palliative care, I say engage a doula at the palliative care stage. Um, But really, people can engage a doula anytime. You don't have to be terminally ill. If you're uh, an older person and you're thinking, hey, I really need to get my paperwork in order, or um, I'm really looking back at my life and I want to leave something behind, but I don't know what necessarily... Start working with the doula. It doesn't have to be at the 11th hour. But my biggest piece of advice is that um, not to wait until you really start declining. Because if you want to do things uh, like legacy projects, that does take some time and energy. And a lot of people, um, you know, have these ideas of things they want to do, but then they find after engaging a doula too far down the road that they just don't have the energy to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, which is which is a shame. So as early as you can is the answer. That's great. One last quick question for you, and this is my favorite question right now. What does it mean to have a good death? That is a completely subjective <laughs> answer. <laughs> um, uh, uh, you know, there's a there's a lot we can't control about death, but mm-hmm. you know, working with a doula brings back what little control you have. Mm-hmm. And so, I would say a good death is one where you and your caretakers are educated on what that road to death is going to look like, from you know, symptom perspective to emotional aspect, um, and then putting in place the controls you can. Do you want to have silk sheets in your dying bed and burn a lavender candle? You got it. Mm -hmm. Having those kind of things in place and saying, this is my moment. This is my biggest event. And embracing that, I think, is a good death. 
That's a wonderful perspective. She is Jane Dorman, an end-of-life doula with Peaceful Crossings Durham. Jane, if folks want to get a hold of you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, you can go to my website, which is www.peacefulcrossingsdurham.com. You can contact me there. Easy enough. Peacefulcrossingsdurham.com. Again, Jane Dorman, an end-of-life doula with Peaceful Crossings Durham. Thank you so much for your time today, Jane. We really appreciate it. Thank you. That's going to do it for Mary and myself today. I want to remind you that you can listen to past episodes of Aging Matters online at WPTF.com. Go to shows, find Aging Matters, and there you can listen to our full archive of podcasts available for you at WPTF.com. Don't forget, you can also go to transitionslifecare.org. If you would like to find more resources available to you and events put on by Transitions Life Care, go to transitionslifecare.org. On behalf of Mary Lucas, I am Jason Kong. Thank you so much for listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Have a wonderful day. You've been listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. For more information, log on to transitionslifecare.org.